بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير ربي شحل صدري ويسر لأمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي أما بعد الحمد لله This is lesson 52 in our study of the seerah of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم titled The Radiant Light and this is our third session looking at the Medinan period of the seerah of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم in our first session we were talking about the Prophet ﷺ arriving at Quba and staying there and then leaving to make way for Medina proper and delivering the very first Jumu'ah khutbah that he gave between Quba and Medina. And then we talked about how the Messenger of Allah ﷺ entered Medina, how he was received by the men and women and children of the city and how the spot of the masjid was chosen. So the hijrah or the migration of the Prophet to Medina signaled the establishment of the world's first Darul Islam. And Darul Islam is a legal term in Sharia. We have a variety of terms that describe different abodes, different places and their relevant rulings. We have terms like Darul Islam, we have Darul Kufr, Darul Aman, Darul Sulh, Darul Harb, all sorts of terms. And this is the establishment of the world's first Darul Islam. Now, legally speaking, from a fiqhi perspective, Darul Islam is, devi- is defined by the majority of the fuqaha, the majority of the jurists, as that abode, that land, in which the sharia of Islam is in effect. Now, this definition is that of the Jumhur, the majority. There are others who say that the Dar of Islam is the Dar in which the majority of the inhabitants are Muslim. And you can see how those definitions can present some complexities in how we look at the modern world and modern nation states. Because if you say that Dar al-Islam is the Dar in which the Sharia is applied, what does that mean? mean for Muslim majority countries where the Sharia is not applied or if it's applied it's limited to al-ahwal al-shakhsiyyah you know marriage divorce inheritance and so on or the lands where Islamic law is given lip service where in the constitution all it says is uh, everything is guided by the the Sharia of Islam, but you don't see any aspect of it in real life outside of people's personal life. It's not implemented in the actual state apparatus. Anyhow, that's a long conversation. But this is the very first Dar al-Islam. 
And this is in turn heralded by the appearance of what we call the Islamic polity. I don't want to use the term state because that is a, a very modern term. We wouldn't use that term, but we would say the sulta, the, the authority, the governance of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, as the supervisor, founder, and ruler of Medina. So the very first thing the Prophet وسلم, does is establish Medina as a Darul Islam. If you look at the entire Medinan period from a panoramic view, the very first thing he's doing is establishing a Darul Islam, very clearly. But in establishing that Darul Islam, what are the formal steps he took to establish it in the society? Well, we see in the seerah that he took three major steps. The first thing he did was the construction of the masjid. We see from last week's class that when the Messenger ﷺ arrived in Medina, everyone's inviting him to their house. Everyone would love to have the honor to receive him. But as he told them, his camel is ma'mura, it's under divine command. So he has to go wherever the camel stops. Where does the camel go? It goes to the open area that was owned by, or who's ha who, an area that was owned by some people from Banu Najjar. And the closest house to it was the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu. So you see that in his first arrival to Medina, the initial concern was finding the suitable location for establishing the masjid. That was the priority, even before finding where he's going to spend the night. Even though he's spending the night and staying with Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, which is the closest house to this piece of property, the priority was finding where the camel is going to stop, which will determine where the masjid is going to be. So that's the first step in building this Dar al-Islam, establishing the masjid. The second thing he does after determining the place and doing, ensuring the masjid is constructed is affirming and strengthening the fraternal bonds among the Muhajirun who migrated and the Ansar who are the natives of Medina. And this was a formal bond that he paired between them called the Muakhat or the Pact of Brotherhood. That's the second step. The third thing he did when establishing this Darul Islam after constructing the masjid and this formal pact of brotherhood was to draw up a written document that we could call, again, we don't say state and we may not want to say constitution either, but it's a mithaq. And a mithaq is a a document that guarantees certain rights and demands certain responsibilities and it is uh, something like a constitution. He drew up a written constitution that would define the way of life which the Muslims would adopt among the Muhajirun and the Ansar and among themselves as well as define the nature of the relationship they would have with other people in that society who were not Muslims, most notably the Jewish tribes, the three tribes. So today we're going to talk about the first two of those steps. 
And next week, inshallah, we talk about this Mithaqul Madina and what it entailed and the history of that document. So we mentioned last week how the Prophet ﷺ entered Medina with 500 of the companions all around him and that he could have chosen to stay wherever he wanted to. But instead he told them that his camel is under divine command and the camel went to the area where would be the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ. Where did that camel sit? We said it sat in this open area where the people would use to dry out their dates. Now is that area uh, a public area that's not owned by anyone or is it owned? The answer is that it was owned. It did uh, belong to a family and that family had two children that were orphans. So this open ground belonged to two young men from the Ansar. The first one's name is Sahil and the other one na is named Suhail. So Sahil and Suhail. So Sahil and little Sahil. And they are the sons of Amr. And they were of Banu, Ab Banu Malik ibn Najjar. So Banu Malik ibn Najjar are, they're from the Najjariya, which means they are also distant relatives to the Prophet ﷺ. Now, these are two young men. Their father had died, and this land belongs to them. But they have a guardian. They have an, an adult man who is looking after them and looking, looking after their property and wealth. Who is that man looking after them and their wealth? It is none other than As'ad ibn Zurara. And we remember As'ad ibn Zurara as being among the very first of the Ansar to embrace Islam and come back with the message. So As'ad ibn Zurara is looking after these young men and As'ad, because he's looking after them, he's also making use of that area. So it is used by people to dry out their dates, but it's a fairly large plot. So he's using part of that plot as his musalla. When he comes back to Medina, after meeting the Prophet وسلم, uh, and, and embracing Islam, he's learned how to pray. Mus'ab ibn Umair has been with them, teaching them salat. Well, now As'ad's using this plot as his own personal musalla. And he would also bring people along with him and they would pray there together. So you see, even before the hijrah, that spot was a musalla. And it would soon go from being a musalla to a masjid. So it was already used for salat, but in a less formal way. So the camel kneels in this area. The Prophet ﷺ we know is staying with Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, who is the nearest of Banu Najjar to this plot of land. The Prophet ﷺ gives instructions that the masjid should be built on this plot of land. What does he do? He calls for those two young men, Sahal and Suhail, and he offers to buy land from them. And these two young men, they're not little kids, but they're still very young. They say to the Prophet ﷺ, No, Ya Rasulullah, we give it to you as a gift. And the Prophet ﷺ insisted on buying it from them and not taking it as a gift. And the narration says he purchased it from them for 10 dinars, 
and he took those dinars from the money that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu had with him. So based on that narration, the property was purchased from the money that Abu Bakr had radiallahu anhu. Now this hadith actually gives rise to a legal discussion too. And that is the ruling on uh, young people conducting sales. Because the fuqaha differ about this. You have differences between the Shafi'iyah, the Malikiyah, and the Ahnaf about whether a child who has not reached the age of maturity can legally conduct a sale. And there's various levels of detail to that. And those who allow it use this hadith as a proof that a, a child can conduct a valid sale with an adult. Others would respond by saying, this hadith doesn't prove that because this is the Prophet wasallam. this is from his khasais, right? And not, it doesn't apply to everyone. Now that's common knowledge, or it used to be common knowledge in, in the Muslim lands, where young people were not allowed to buy and sell until they reach a certain age, and the adults knew that. Or there were arrangements where the adults would give permission uh, or they would convey their permission to shopkeepers to allow their children to act on their behalf. You know, some fuqaha allowed for that. Um, I remember in, in Mauritania, because in the Madiki school, you can't, children can't do sales. Uh, one of my friends and I were walking one morning. This young boy had a bag full of these, what do you call those? These, these loaves, these French loaves. Baguettes, yeah, baguettes. He had a bag of them. And my friend wanted to buy one from this kid. Friends coming from America, you know, he's just learning this stuff. And the young man says, no, no, just take it as a gift. Oh, here, tafaddal. He's like, no, 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 I want to buy it from you, please. He's like, no, just take it, tafaddal, take it. And my friend insists one more time, please, I insist on buying it. Give me a fair price, I'll give you the money. And then the kid looks at him. This is Mauritania, it's a mahdara, this is where people learn fiqh. He looks at him and says, don't you know I can't do transactions Islamically? It's not allowed for me? And my friend realized, oh, that's why he's saying no. I'll accept the gift. So this happens. This young, these two young men insisted on giving it. The Prophet demands, insists that he pays them. So the money goes to them. And the property is now for the construction of the masjid. So we're looking at the history of how the masjid was constructed. And the history of the masjid itself is found in a, a certain subgenre of seerah, which looks at the history of the masjid itself, its construction, and its expansion over the years during the life of the Prophet and then outside of the seerah, it looks at the later expansions and it goes on and on to define the, the or not define, but to explain the, what happened over history as it expanded, who expanded it, and whose house was located where in the present day structure, right? There's a whole subgenre there. Now, before the masjid was constructed, after he arrived in Medina, the Prophet ﷺ is praying wherever he may happen to be. And he would like to pray in areas where sheep were kept. And this is in Bukhari. When the Prophet ﷺ concludes the sale and is looking after the land and seeing what needs to be done, 
PCs, like everyone else, that though you have this open area for the dates, there's also a lot of clutter because it's, there's no house built on this. It's an open area. So there were gharqad uh, trees, box thorn trees, and we know the gharqad will feature later on in our eschatology, but the gharqad tree was there. You had uh, palm trees, date palm trees of various sizes there. You had a swampy area in this, in this place, and also lots of old graves that had belonged to whoever among unknown mushrikun or whoever. Meaning the, even the headstones had long disintegrated and this area needed to be cleaned up. So the water was drained, the trees were cut down, and the palm trees that were there were used and arranged in rows along the side of the masjid that was going to be facing the qibla. Where's the qibla at this stage? Baytul Maqdis. So it's facing north. So those date palm trees that were cut down are prepared so that they're facing the north on the sides of the masjid or what is going to become the masjid. So the area was prepared, the ground was, the graves were dug up and removed. The water was drained so that the swamp would disappear. And they set about constructing this masjid. And there's a lot of narrations about uh, how they did it. And we have some details about the, uh, the initial size and the layout. So they say from these narrations that the side of the masjid facing the qibla, which was facing towards Bayt al-Maqdis, was 60 by 70 cubits. So a cubit is, so a dhira'a, it's a cubit. So 60 or 70 of these, uh, and they say about 30 to 35 meters. 30 to 35 meters, or you could say 100 feet, give or take. So 100 feet uh, from the sides, and the foundation of the masjid, meaning from the ground, was actually dug three cubits deep, so three of these. So they dig three of these, so you could say five, six feet maybe, who knows, maybe less, was dug through it to lay the foundation for the pillars that would go to support the roof and the structure. So the pillars were dug, placed in that foundation. Those pillars were also made out of tree trunks. And the height of the wall on both sides was about six feet. So these are longer date palm trees going into the ground, covered up as foundations. They come up to about six feet. Now that's a low roof, think about it. If you look in this, Masjid, if any of you stands up, if you're six, five and a half, six feet, how much feet do you have between your head and the ceiling? I mean, yeah, five, six feet maybe, right? So imagine the average sized person in that day and age, when they come into this masjid, their heads are going to be very close to the roof. So it's a very low lying structure in the beginning. So the roof was constructed after this but it was not a roof that was for protecting them from the elements really except the sun and even then it wasn't complete it was only in the front area where where the front area of the salat was where the imam would be that area facing the qibla which is facing north was covered with these date palm fronds you know a date palm frond you go to the date tree you 
cut down the, they call it the frond, you have the leaves. They're laying those over the top and making a roof. So it's really a makeshift roof. If it rains, you're going to get wet. We even have hadith describing how it would rain on the rare occasions it rained and the mud would, the rain would seep through and the floor of the masjid would be muddy. We even have a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ is described as having made sajda and the imprint of the mud is on his blessed forehead. So it doesn't keep the rain out. It's not really keeping the wind out. At the most, it's keeping the sun out in that area, but not even the entire masjid. So think of it as an, an open air masjid and the side and the roof area, which isn't that much, it covers about six feet. So the rest of it's out in the open, like this. This is the initial structure of the masjid, and that's going to change over the years, but that's the way it was initially built. Now we have some interesting narrations that describe the, the way some of the companions were viewing the construction of the masjid. Ibn Wasad, he mentions in his tabaqat, which is a really good resource for seerah, he mentions a narration that someone said to the Prophet ﷺ, shouldn't we make a stronger roof? So that means either the existing roof, which is very partial in the front, shouldn't it be strengthened? Or should we not make a full roof that's really strong and robust? That, that's time consuming. So the Sahabi says, shouldn't we make a stronger roof? And the Prophet ﷺ replied, rather, a makeshift shelter like that of Musa. Let it be a makeshift shelter like that of Musa, a few planks of wood and some brush, because the matter is sooner than that, meaning life is very short, and the priority is to establish the masjid for the salat, not to elongate this construction process before it's being used for its purpose. Another narration recorded by Imam al-Bayhaqi, coming from Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu anhu, he mentions that the Ansar had gathered some money. They pulled their resources together, gathered some money, and they took it to the Prophet sallallahu and they said, Ya Rasulullah, use this to build the masjid and adorn it. Adorn it. How long, they asked, will you continue to pray beneath a roof made of palm branches? And the Prophet ﷺ replied, I have no desire for anything except what my brother Musa had, a hut like the hut of Musa. What is the hut of Musa? Well, we have the answer. In Al-Daylamiz Musnal Al-Firdaus, we have the hadith where he was asked that very question. What is this hut of Musa you're talking about? What is this canopy of Musa you're describing? And he said, when he stood up, Sayyiduna Musa alayhi salam, his head would touch the ceiling. So, this is how it was in the very beginning. Now, one of those sub-genre works that describe the structure of the masjid in the early days and the history of the masjid and Medina as a whole, uh, Ibn, Ibn Zabala's Wafa al-Wafa, he mentions a narration from Sayyiduna Anas radiallahu anhu, who said that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, built the masjid first with the palm branches as the roof. 
and only added bricks in the full structure four years after the Hijrah. So it went through stages, even in the lifetime of the Prophet Sallallahu but the expansion wouldn't happen until later, but the adding on to the roof and the structure would happen four years later, adding these bricks. Now, we have other narrations describing the process of building those walls to the side, right? And we have some of those in Sahih Bukhari and in other collections in which we see the Messenger being as a true leader. Because a true leader leads from the front. That's a leadership 101. Whether it's business, military, whatever it is, any leader to, to have the support of those under his command, he needs to lead from the front. In the construction of the masjid, we find these really beautiful narrations describing it, where everybody is doing it in this very joyful mood, because it's so promising. After all these years, now he's here. First order of priority is constructing the masjid. The masjid has been per- the the plot has been purchased. The foundation has been dug, and now it's time to make the bricks out of the mud and to stack those around the foundation and the walls to get this foundation up so we have the masjid. It was a very joyous project. Everyone was happy and cooperating and there was a line of people between those who were taking the mud and pressing it in and making the bricks and letting them dry and carrying them and passing them on to others who would then take them. Have you ever seen this done? Most people haven't. Uh, If you go to some parts of the world where they still build mud houses, you see it's a very elaborate project. The first thing you need to do is to dig up a huge dirt pile and get it from somewhere. Then you need to add hay or some other binding substance. Then you need to add the water to the top of that and let it become at the right thickness so that that can be taken and molded into the shape of bricks. And then those bricks need to be molded and shaped and pressed into something. And then they have to sit out for a while. A couple of days for one side, a couple of days for the other side until they're hardened. And then you've got to carry those. And they're heavy and they have to be placed. And then you have to take another pile of dirt with hay and water added mud to use as plaster over those bricks to give them the support. This is a whole elaborate process and they're doing this. And for a lot of them, it's very clear it's their first time doing it. We have one narration where one Sahabi, who was a new Muslim, who had just came, he came from the Yemen. He started doing the process of pressing in the bricks and shaping them. And the Prophet saw that he was the best bricklayer out of them all. He had the skills that others didn't have. And he had him demonstrate these skills and lead that process. So they're all carrying these bricks one by one and placing them in. And one of the things people tend to do in those environments is to uh, talk among themselves, engage in banter, joyful banter, playful talk, or just singing songs. Right? So work songs. This is common in so many cultures, and Medina is no exception. And we have it in Bukhari and other narrations where the Sahaba are singing these songs. And the Prophet ﷺ is joining in uh, reading these words. For example, in Bukhari we find them saying, 
Allahumma innahu la khayra illa khayrul akhira fansuril ansara wal muhajira O Allah there is no good other than the good of the hereafter so have mercy on the ansar and the muhajirun so they're saying there's no good except the good of the hereafter uh, what they mean is there's no eternal and abiding good that lasts forever except that which is in the hereafter every good here is temporary it's it's it eventually fades. So the hadith mentioned this. And this is showing you also the permissibility of singing work songs that have permissible lyrics. And one narration shows that when he's carrying the bricks, you know, some of the sahaba, they see this and they, they don't want him to do it. Because in their mind, they want to honor him. Why should he burden himself with all of this hard backbreaking work, carrying all of these bricks in the hot sun? And they want to take the bricks off of him. And he insists on doing it himself, leading by example. And that is encouraging the rest of them. Because think about this. If the Prophet ﷺ pushes through and carries brick after brick after brick in the hot sun, and this is your qutwa, your example, are you going to excuse yourself and sit out in the shade and take a break while he's doing the work? No way. So that's actually serving a, a, a role. It, it's the function of encouraging others to push through the fatigue and continue with the work. One hadith says that as he's carrying the bricks, he takes off his cloak. And we could say he took it off because of the heat. Others who were carrying bricks saw that and they took off their cloaks too, just to imitate him. He takes his off, we take ours off. And we're following his lead in everything. And this is how it went. Now, Imam al-Tabarani, he mentions a narration in his Mu'jam al-Kabir. It says that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then laid down a brick among the final bricks to that foundation. And when he laid down this final brick, he called Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu to come over and told him to lay down his final brick. And then he told Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu to lay down his final brick. And then guess who was the third person to be called? Sayyidina Uthman. And there's lots of narrations like this. Lots of narrations throughout the seerah where you have that order of events, whether it's in laying the bricks or in receiving them as guests and disclosing certain private information. You have lots of narrations like this. And many of them also include Sayyidina Ali. But here Sayyidina Ali is very young. He's still relatively young. And in this narration, he's not there. So the question is, after the property was purchased and they cleared out those graves and they drained the, the, the swampy water, cut down the trees, established the foundation, laid the bricks, prepared everything, how long did that all take before it was ready for daily use as a masjid? Well, Imam al-Bayhaqi records in his Dala'i al-Nabuwa that it took a total of two weeks. Now I'm here to tell you, Having lived in Yemen, in a very remote area of Yemen where we all lived in mud houses and where we saw the construction of mud houses and even participated in that effort, to build a medium-sized house for a family of three or four 
you can do it in under two weeks, but it takes a lot of manpower and it's still a lot of work. So to build something this large with this many people in two weeks, you see there's a lot of effort involved. It seems like it was a nonstop process. It's almost as if it was, we wouldn't ever say it was rushed through because no corners were cut, but it was priority number one after his arrival in Medina to establish the masjid. Now, we learned that the roof, the area that is covered, was very low, about six feet. And in the beginning, the Prophet ﷺ only covered that northern portion with this palm frond roof. And that's the north area facing the Qibla of that time, which is towards Bayt al-Maqdis. The change would not happen until about 18 months later when the command came. And that means that this area that is facing north, that's roofed, will now become the back area of the masjid. Now remember that, because that shaded area becomes a residence. Okay, we'll come back to that inshallah. So eventually a full roof was built, but it was still of palm fronds to protect them from the sun, but the rain would still get in and the wind would get in. So that's a bit about the construction of the masjid. But is the masjid just the walls? Is the masjid just the roof? Is it just the foundation? No, there's other things that make the masjid the masjid. When you think of a masjid, any masjid anywhere around the world, you obviously think of the structure, but there's something else that's featured in virtually every masjid that's a part of the masjid. Any masjid without it seems like it's missing something. What would that thing be? Minara. A minara, okay. Someone said a minara, a minaret. Well, minarets came much later. So it's not a minara, it's not a minaret. Some might say a mihrab, a, a prayer niche for the voice to travel. That's also a later addition. And there's even discussion about... Uh, very good, the mimbar. The mimbar is part and parcel of the masjid. So in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, where they talk about the construction of the masjid, they usually segue in, into this discussion about the history of the minbar. But here's the thing. The minbar of the Prophet ﷺ that we know and recognize, that actually came much later. But it doesn't mean there was nothing that served the role of the minbar before that. What served that role? Now, the masjid itself received a full roof by around the fourth year. And in the eighth year, the Prophet ﷺ had a proper minbar of three steps. But before that eighth year, for eight years, there's something else that he used for the purpose of leaning on and standing on when addressing the community. Whether it's khutbahs, uh, general reminders or lessons, and sometimes even uh, demonstrating how to pray. That was the trunk of a date palm. It was a very large trunk of a date palm tree. And this date palm tree, subhanAllah, you think about it. Imagine if you're a date palm. 
I know it's not really possible. We don't have any frame of reference of what it might be like to be a date palm. We would not know how to express the essence of date palmness. But just imagine you're this inanimate date palm. Well, we know that the stones and the other inanimate objects, trees, trees are living, right? They're not sentient beings, but they're, they're living. But even the non-sentient things, uh, like inanimate objects, they have a, a form of intellection. I don't, maybe that's not the right word, but they have an understanding. وَلَكِنْ لَا تَفْقَهُونَ تَسْبِيحَهُمْ They have their glorification. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls pebbles to glorify Allah. And in the hadith, it mentions the Sahaba hearing the tasbih. So where is the miracle here? Is the miracle in the pebbles doing tasbih? Or is the miracle in the Sahaba hearing what they already do? Right? A lot of the mashayikh, they say that the miracle is not the pebbles doing tasbih because they always do that the miracle is Allah lifting the veils from the ears of those sahaba who are able to hear the tasbih so the same thing applies to trees in some of the mashayikh they say that when you walk in a forest or in a desolate area and you're doing dhikr the trees and the stones they actually brag to the other trees they say marrabiya dhakir you know, a person who remembers Allah passed by me from the ummah of the Prophet wasallam. So it's a whole world we don't perceive of the unseen with trees and stones and the like. But imagine, if you will, you're a date palm tree. And you just happen to be in this empty lot that is used for the masjid. You get cut down and you're placed as a part of the foundation or a part of the wall. Or maybe... You're another date palm down the road. And this date palm was cut down and used for the masjid, but you're not, right? You haven't received that honor. Maybe you're a date palm in an orchard, a date palm grove with a well, and Sahaba are fetching water from the well and they're watering the irrigation channels for you. And then another orchard, another date palm grove has been honored to receive the Prophet ﷺ, whose blessed saliva went into the well. And now as you as a date palm in this orchard, this grove, you receive water from that well that's been uh, uh, perfumed and blessed by the saliva of the Prophet ﷺ. So this date palm was not a full date palm. It was actually a trunk. And it was used as the... Uh, quasi-minbar, pre-minbar object for the Prophet ﷺ to stand on and lean on. So in the beginning, he would use this for the khutbas. Hadith mentioned him leaning his blessed back on this trunk. Other hadith mentioned him standing on it. It was very thick at the base, so it would enable him to stand on top of it and move relatively freely. One hadith even mentions him standing on the top of this date palm trunk and demonstrating, actually praying, actually in salat, on top of it, so that others can see the postures as they're in the prayer rows at a distance. So imagine you're at the the seventh, eighth row 
or more, and you're a brand new Muslim, if you want to see how the Prophet ﷺ prays, how are you going to? Unless you're in the front rows. So there are hadith where he would stand on top of that. So he's above them. He's leading the prayer while he's on top. And they're seeing the postures. And this also shows you they're looking at him as they're praying and learning simultaneously. So this, it, it had multiple functions. So the hadith mentioned that as more and more people became Muslim, more and more people as Islam grew and the crowds grew larger, the companions began to say, if only you had something higher you could stand on so you can give your khutbah and so people can see you. Because now the crowds are so large, even this stump is not enough for everyone to get a full glimpse of him and to hear him as he's doing the khutbah. So the Prophet ﷺ heard this and he told one of the women of the Ansar who had a slave who was very skilled in carpentry. And he told this Ansari woman to have that servant make a minbar for him. So this carpenter made the minbar, constructing it using three steps. So you see the minbar here. This is three steps. This is actually in conformity with the sunnah. Of course, today you have larger manabir for the larger jawami', the larger congregational masajid. And no one's saying you can't have it larger than three, but the sunnah, the ideal is three. And that's how it was built in his time. It was three. Now, the mimbar is moved into the masjid. It's now a part of the masjid. What's going to happen to the date palm trunk? Now, if you are the date palm, give the, pretend you're the date palm and you have some consciousness. This mimbar comes in. You're going to lose out. So what happens? They move the date palm trunk and make way for the minbar. Now there's a, a mutawatir hadith. Mutawatir meaning it, it comes through so many different chains of narration. So many different individuals that epistemologically it has the same authority as Qur'an in that it is qat'i al-thubut meaning it was witnessed by so many people it was not a one-off situation and this is coming from multiple chains we have the hadith and it mentions that when the Prophet ﷺ came for Jumu'ah and during the very first khutbah he gave on those three steps as he's delivering the khutbah the sahaba said we began to hear a wailing like that of a baby camel and we found that the source of the noise was the stump so you can imagine this date palm is wailing like a baby camel and it's so loud that everyone can hear it so they realized this is the source of the noise, the wailing. They said the Prophet ﷺ interrupted his khutbah, descended down the minbar, and went to the stump and embraced it. And then 
in that prophetic embrace, the date palm stump began to sniffle and it stopped crying. And then it stopped sniffling. This is one narration describing it. Sayyiduna Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu, he says that he heard the Prophet wasallam say, if I had not hugged it, it would have cried like this until Yawmul Qiyamah. Crying until Yawmul Qiyamah because for eight years it had the honor of Al Qadaman al Sharifatan, the two blessed feet of the Prophet on it and his blessed back. Only for the mimbar to come and it to be put to the side. So he says, if I didn't hug it, it would have cried and wailed until the day of judgment. And there's some other narrations about this. When Hassan al-Basri would narrate this hadith from Sayyidina Anas, and he's a second generation, and he would say after narrating it, O Muslims, the wood of the date palm, the wood grieves for the Messenger of Allah are not men wanting to meet him more worthy to long for him? Right? So, you know these environmentalists, right? The people who, they go to the redwood forest in the Pacific Northwest and they chain themselves to these trees. Right? What do they call them? They call them tree huggers, right? Uh, I don't think we should use that term necessarily because it has a certain connotation but the person who embraced this trunk was hugging it and calming it down and this shows you the longing of inanimate objects so if the inanimate objects can have that kind of longing what about animate objects what about human beings right now we have lots of hadith about this date palm trunk Um Salama radiallahu anha for instance she says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said that the feet sorry this is about the minbar not the date palm trunk the, the hadith of Um Salama is about the minbar uh, the hadith of Abu Huraira mentions that the, the date palm trunk was given a choice to be a minbar and used or to be honored with companionship and be in Jannah with the Prophet ﷺ as an inanimate object. And it shows the latter, to be in Jannah. So this means that every single Muslim whom Allah blesses with entering Jannah, they have the opportunity to visit this date palm trunk and see it. It's there, it's going to be there. So the date palm trunk was then buried and it remains in that state. It's, it's not unearthed, it's under the ground now, and that's how it remains until Yom Al-Qiyamah. The minbar that was constructed remained, and we should not misconstrue things. Because just as the date palm trunk had a longing and love for the Prophet ﷺ, don't you think the wood used for making the minbar also had that? It's also coming from a date palm tree, most likely. I'm not actually sure about that. Uh, one narration does mention it might have been from a different wood. But anyhow, this mimbar has specific virtue too. You have the hadith of Um Salama where the Prophet ﷺ says that the feet of this mimbar of mine are firmly set in Jannah. 
you have the hadith where it says that between my home and my minbar is a rawda min riyadh al-jannah. What's that area called? The rawda. The rawda. When you go inside there, you are in that space. And he says, وسلم, my minbar is at the banks of the hawd. So the pond at which the believers gather on the day of judgment to receive drink and be in the company of Rasulullah they will find there the physical minbar also there. So think about this. Human beings, we are human beings. We are accountable. We die. We're in the barzakh. We're resurrected. People face judgment. Muslims eventually gather at the hawd. As they gather there, something else in this dunya will also be there, and that's the minbar. So the minbar you see, the minbar of Rasulullah will also be there. It will be transported in whatever way Allah wills, because it's all under the power of Allah. And Jabir radiallahu anhu mentions a hadith from the Prophet anyone who takes a sinful oath at the minbar will take his seat in the hellfire. Which means anyone who at the minbar says wallahi to something that's a lie, he says let him take his seat in the hellfire. How can you be in the proximity of this honored and blessed thing on which the Prophet stood and you do not recognize its gravity and you swear a lying oath. And the hadith says even if the oath was about a green miswak, even if it's something small. So these are some of the narrations we have about the minbar uh, that was replacing that date palm trunk. Now we know also in our seerah that among the sahaba there was one companion who was the most eager and avid to follow all of the footsteps and places and traces of the Prophet He would purposely look out for those places. Even if he stopped somewhere on the road, if the Prophet stopped somewhere on the road, this Sahabi would stop there even if he had no reason to, just out of seeking the athar of the Prophet What's that Sahabi's name? Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma. It is reported that he used to rub the seat of the minbar of the Prophet ﷺ and wipe his face with it, tabarrukan, seeking the blessings of the athar. And, th- and that's how it was. Uh, we have similar narrations from others who came later, but this shows you how those things were preserved. Now, uh, the intention was to also go into the muakhat. That was my intention today. It's very rare that I don't get to cover everything I intend to, but we went a little bit more into the to the date palm trunk. The next thing, that's the first thing, constructing the masjid, priority number one. The second thing he did in establishing this Darul Islam was the Brotherhood Pact, where he, through a formal pact, united the Ansar and the Muhajirun, where one side is supporting the other as they build this new life. So inshallah, next week we'll look at that, we'll start from that, and then go into the Mithaqul Madinah, the, the covenant or the pact of Medina that created the political framework for how the Muslims were to be among themselves and how they were to be vis-a-vis 
the other communities in Medina, insha'Allah ta'ala. Hada wa sallallahu wa sallama ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. What's your three questions? I can make it pretty quick. Right, the, the, the one question I have is, yeah, is uh, in terms of the age regarding the, uh, obviously you said, uh, you said the, the Hanabila, they don't have, what is that? Hanabila who does, don't have children that do uh, commerce? Uh, it's, be, it's between the, the Madikiya and the Shafi'iya. That allow it? That don't. That don't allow it. I, I don't know about the Hanabila in this regard. Uh, so the debate's been between them on one side and the Hanafis on the other. So what, what, what is the permissible age? Is it, is it the child have to have hit puberty? Pretty much. Okay. There's some, uh, within the Madahib, there's allowance for them doing that. Some allow if you give specific permission in specific transactions, because that's seen as being under your supervision. As a proxy, okay. as opposed to them independently doing it, and there's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember when I received a very large sum of money. Oh, you know, for, as a second grader, uh, second grade student with a large sum of money as a birthday gift, and I, my brilliant idea was to take that to the school. The, you know, they have the little school area where you could buy pencils and erasers and sharpeners and all these knickknacks and I pulled out the money I said how many of these cool you know you know back in the 80s they had these weird cool pencils and weird erasers how many can I buy with this and the lady she said let me hold this for you <laughs> she didn't allow so there's a wisdom in not allowing children to have uh, to do those kinds of transactions right however an argument can be made if you give them the money and you direct them to purchase something and that's with your permission and supervision it's not the same. So of course there's no where you just take the item and just gift the money to No, you as an adult, you're not allowed either. So the transaction is between right, you have Ijab al you have both on both sides. As an adult, according to those Madahib, it's haram for you to sell to a child. Just as it's haram for that child to buy from you. So you as an adult are responsible for upholding that end. So the difference is that for them, if they're under the age of taklif, they're not sinful for doing it, but the transaction is invalid. And for you as an adult, the transaction is invalid, and if you willfully do it, you're also sinning. Yeah.